Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there, and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter, my co-host. David, what what are we... We've got a lot to talk about. What, yeah. Tell us about the show today. Hey, Josh. Well, first of all, welcome to the national emergency. Hope everyone's feeling good. Yeah. Hanging in there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you're right. There's a lot going on. There's um, a bunch of different threads in the Russia story that we want to talk about today. Um, not just that, but legal proceedings that have been really interesting lately, and also a, a new book from the former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who's also been not only does he have this new book out, but he's been going on basically every like a total television media show tour. that you yeah, can, like a uh, can you imagine. Media tour, yeah. First of all, I'm here with Josh Kavensky, one of our investigative reporters. Hey, Josh. Hey, how's it going? And on the line, we have Tierney Sneed, our other investigative reporter down in D.C., enjoying the snow day. Hey, Tierney. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So, yeah, so we want to get into that. But before we do, briefly discuss, well, we've got, it, it's big news. I mean, it's all kind of like we're we're sort of thrown here because, like, we have such big news. We want to get right to it. But, I mean, we still have to. First things first. Yeah. First things first. Uh, want to become a true office hero. Treat yourself and your coworkers to the best iced coffee in the country with a 42-serving bag-in-the-box from Grady's Cold Brew iced coffee. Now shipping to 20 states on the East Coast, this coffee concentrate pours from a spigot just like boxed wine. So help yourself to cup after cup of Grady's signature New Orleans-style flavor, freshly brewed with chicory for just a hint of all-natural sweetness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sGoldBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. You know, David, I I was actually, I I was thinking today, I actually want to have Grady on. Yeah, that'd be fun. To, you know, and I know that sounds like the cheesiest sort of like, wow, you're actually doing like, you know, advertorial well, you know, product money, placements. Right. But no, but the thing is, is that not only did, did you know, I start drinking Grady's before they, they started sponsoring our podcast, but I actually knew Grady. Right. Like, I, I mean, I, you know, know him by, but never met him in person. But like, um, have you met him? Have you met him since then, or not? No, no, never I've never. I've, I've only uh, just corresponded. I may, I may have talked to him on the phone once, but yeah. you know, corresponded by email. But we even had sort of like you know our ringers on the Grady staff that like if there yeah. was a, if there was like a blizzard, <laughs> I would say like we're we're low. You need to bring some to us, even if you like die to, on the way over. That's here. right. A day yeah. kind of like today. You know, I wanted to mention too. I noticed the Grady's website has a bunch of recipes on it, too. Did you know that? I did not Grady's know Grady's coffee cake. There's like a blood orange punch. Oh, I didn't There's know There's like that. a Grady's Manhattan. Someone's birthday party is coming up. We might want to, maybe we can all right. sample a few of those. All right, all right. All so right. anyways, yeah, let's get to the news. Yes. Just before we came in here to record, this is Tuesday, sorry, Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday, yep. CNN just had a big story drop. 
uh, that Bill Barr, the newly sworn in attorney general, is planning to announce as early as next week that the Mueller probe is coming to a, a close. And Josh Kavensky, you just wrote, it, wrote up this story. Kind of what can you tell us that we know so far? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not entirely unexpected. You know, NBC had a report out in December um, saying that it would be mid-February when the Mueller report would be released. At that time, at the time, people didn't really know what to make of it because it was sort of a shot in the dark. But now we see other people confirming it. It's also worth noting that CNN had some details in their story, which kind of firmed it up a little bit more. For example, they saw um, special counsel prosecutors wheeling out huge boxes full of fi- legal files uh, from their offices in the Justice Department. They also, I think, said that the uh, grand jury hadn't been convened for a few weeks, I think since like mid to late January. So that was just before the Stone arrest then, Exactly. Basically? So I think since a few days before Stone was arrested. Hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, this this is a very weird development, even though it has been, it has been telegraphed, I guess, right. as far back as, as December. Um, it certainly, it certainly seems from the outside, like there are various different threads of this investigation that appear to be ongoing. I, I guess part of the issue there is that, and and what has been anticipated is that the special counsel's office, it has certain prosecution, you know, people have already been indicted, prosecutions lined up, and those can be just handed over to career Justice Department lawyers, and they just follow them through. And so it's not like, I mean, obviously... Uh, Roger Stone hasn't been tried yet, and that can't end next week. But it does it does seem a little odd since presumably one would guess that the special counsel's office was was looking to to squeeze more information out of Roger Stone, maybe get him to yeah. cooperate. So and that well, what what do you think? Well, I would also add to that, you know, there's still the matter of these two grand jury subpoenas that are being fought. Uh, one, this mysterious foreign company, and then also the Andrew Miller subpoena. Um, and again, I mean, I don't really have an answer to why uh, they would shut down the investigation while those two things are still being litigated in the courts. Um, there's also the matter of Jerome Corsi's uh, plea agreement, which presumably would have led to an indictment, but that also they never pulled the trigger on that. So, I mean, there's a lot of question marks kind of floating in the air. And presumably these things, I think you're right, could be taken over by whatever U.S. Attorney's Office or Main Justice or whatever. I mean, career prosecutors could take these, uh, rel- could pick up the threads. Right. Um, and that's what some commentators are already saying was going on with the legal files being moved out as they were just physically moving the cases to wherever they were going to go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, the story just broke half an hour ago. So it's, right. Well, yeah. here, here's what, okay, here's some, I mean, you know, many... Uh, I mean, obviously, this is what Justice Department does. It's not like you know. Of course, they can handle it at a at a at a basic sense. They they do trials. They run massive investigations. So I, I guess the 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 question for me is not, you know, can that happen? Of course, it can happen, and of course, they can do it as far as it goes. But why would it happen? Because it, it's not you know with these with these subpoenas and such. It's not just that. You know, you've got a, a litigation in process. Presumably, they wanted those. They were they, they had the, the subpoena. They wanted yeah. the testimony. They wanted the information. And um, if they can just stop the investigation, I mean, if I were the defendants in those cases, I would say you're stopping the investigation. It must whatever you want from me must not matter very much because you're literally closing the books on the investigation. I'm still here. Now, again, you could say, well. There's going to hand that over to whoever's going to sort of take over the investigation in the Justice Department, and they can look at that, and if there's something there, blah, 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 blah. But again, goes back to the question, 
why'd you have a special counsel in the first place? Because the idea is this cannot be handled from within the Trump Justice Department. And this is, and it's, it is, um, at least if I'm remembering all the moving parts of this, this isn't the same as like Jeff Sessions recusing himself. This is entirely separate from that. It is just that this cannot be done from the Trump Justice Department just because it's about Trump. So if it is ending and if it's being handed off again, it seems something doesn't fit there. It just it just doesn't add up. For, yeah. In my mind, for what we know about this investigation, let me let me say one other point on this. And I think just to sort of be fair about it. And this to me is the biggest mystery. Um, Robert Mueller, there is really nothing we know about Robert Mueller that would make me think, and I think most people think, that if someone came to him and said, you know what, you have to shut down your investigation, that he would just say, oh, cool, okay. Not how I saw it, but yeah, good, good to go. That doesn't, now, it's it's important to, um, it's important to recognize that in this role, Robert Mueller works for the Department of Justice, and there's someone who's supervising his investigation. So if he disagrees about something, that doesn't mean he can just do whatever he wants to do. Someone does supervise him, but obviously there is a there is a level of arbitrariness that would speak for itself. If if you know investigation is moving along full speed and someone comes along and just shuts it down, that doesn't that that so so to the extent that we want that that we are liable to say wow you know the fix was in hard to hard to reconcile that with what we know about the people running the investigation yeah tierney you've been the the reporter for us in the courtroom day after day you've interacted with a lot of the prosecutors on Mueller's team like do you have any what's your reaction to the news on the on the question of timing and why now i'll just add that as you sort of mentioned we've seen these signs that there's some sort of handoff or wrapping up going on for weeks now. And in the CNN report that Barr might be announcing soon that it's wrapping up, they mentioned that they've seen an uptick in prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and other main justice offices coming in and out of Mueller's office. So, you know, at the very least, I think we can tell that this isn't a move that's taking Mueller by surprise. It's not like Bill Barr is coming in this week and saying, all right, we're done here. Um, and another thing I'd note that in the special counsel regulations, there are sort of reporting requirements if there was an action by the DOJ to say, no, special counsel, you can't charge this person. There is a reporting requirement that would sort of keep that transparent. So I agree with the assessment of, uh, of Josh and others here that it's not as simple as this is just getting shut down because Bill Barr's in place. Um, I think this is something at the very least that's been in the works for a while. Hopefully, we'll learn more about the timing and, and why the decisions were made that some of these things that are still percolating could be continued to be pursued um, within the Justice Department's main offices and U.S. Attorney's offices rather than by Mueller. Can I, can I, Tierney, let me ask you about that, because uh, this, is this again, to me, seems like the biggest question. Is there anything that's come up in your reporting that gives you any sense why to the extent this is being, you know, handed off to be completed within the Justice Department, how that doesn't raise the same issues that led to the special counsel being appointed in the first place. The whole the whole point of a special counsel is you can't do it from the Justice Department. One thing I, I would note is that in some of the cases that have arisen out of Mueller's investigation, the U.S. Attorney's offices in D.C. and elsewhere have been involved for many, many months now 
well before this talk of some sort of transfer wrapping up was happening. And there's been some cases like the case brought in Eastern District of Virginia that was sort of an offshoot of the Concord case of this Russian national who's been involved in that effort that sort of highlighted the meddling efforts in in 2018 that Russia was still undergoing. Um, There was an unsealed criminal information, I believe, uh, there that was unsealed back in October, and that was done by EDBA, not by Mueller's office. So I do think, you know, it's not just the recent weeks that we've seen this sort of handing off, but so for, for many, many months and talk about Cohen being handed off, you know, many, many months ago, or the FAR investigations being handed off many, many months ago. It could be that they're just bleeding into to crimes that are beyond just the Russia meddling, and it's just getting kind of beyond that, that very narrow 2016 Trump-Russia sort of confine that the initial appointment was made. But yeah, it's hard to know exactly what what the threshold is for these things to be transferred transferred out because there's still so much more we don't know about those investigations. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add is that we also saw that Manafort failed as a cooperator, and that was something that people initially thought was going to be a huge break for the investigation, and obviously it didn't work out. Right. Yeah. Right. I guess. I mean, look, maybe maybe we will maybe we'll find out next week that like wow, this is a massive report and like. And it's all going to, you know, and it's like a huge thing. And we'll say, oh, wow, okay, you know, I guess it's, I guess so. But that doesn't sound like what's happening here. Even if it doesn't matter report, it's up to Barr to submit the summarized version to Congress, right? Well, the uh, two, that he said a summary. And, and in that CNN report, they flagged that, and I wasn't clear if he's just said this informally or, or if they're referring to things in his in his congressional testimony. But they note that, he thinks that they will be uh, circumscribed by DOJ policy, which is you don't release damaging information about people who you didn't charge with a crime. And that, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that makes sense in a in a conventional process. But especially with people who aren't public figures, yeah, exactly. just kind of a random person. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, you can indict me or not. You You shouldn't just like air my dirty laundry and, and, and destroy my reputation if you can't if you can't indict me. But obviously and this goes back to what we were just kind of talking about globally to the extent this is going to be handed off in various different directions. If the if the investigation is over, right? If if it's as you say, Josh, that you know, they're down to things that came up in the course of the investigation, but it's just this guy was a money launderer. Doesn't really have anything to do with the 2016 election, but we came across it. Now he has to be prosecuted. Okay. But if the investigation is over, that should mean that this issue is settled. It's been looked at and, you know, it's been looked at by a competent investigation. And um, it, it may be a question of whether or not Bill Barr you know, gives that report to Congress, but somewhere there should be a report where, where Bob Mueller says, we found this, and yes, there was actually a conspiracy to to work with Russia, or we looked at it, there were a bunch of very troubling communications, but we ran it all to ground, and there really is not, you know, it's not really there, even though there was kind of a lot of smoke and, and a lot of shady stuff. I, you know, that I don't see how the investigation can end without something like that. And, you know, conceivably, it's more vague, kind of like 
we found a lot of evidence, but you know, we couldn't, the evidence was not just, whatever it is, there should be kind of like an, you know, an official thing. Um, and so, you know, that part again, doesn't, that, that doesn't quite add up to me. Um, maybe we'll see next week. What what we have in store, I guess. Yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly. I mean, possibly. one thing I would add, and we're supposedly getting to this later in the podcast, but there's just so much news to get through is, you know, I just finished reading Andrew McCabe's book that came out, and he talks a bit about Mueller, and again, just about how by the book Mueller is, follows regulations to the T, and he's not really the sort of communicator that would get in front of the press the way Jim, Jim Comey was. Um, and one, one moment that just popped into my head from the book is that McCabe spends a lot of time going through the Hillary Clinton email investigation and Comey's decision to do this splashy press conference announcing no charges, but also sort of bashing Clinton for how she handled it. And he said maybe he should have done what I think Mueller would have done, which is said we're not charging and leaving it there. So it was really striking to me that in, in at least his assessment of what Mueller would do in that situation, he would not want to do any sort of press conference or public announcement sort of airing out the investigation um, that he would want to stick by the book. As much as I think we would all like to know what Mueller found, it might just be that Mueller himself is only planning on following the sort of very bare bones special counsel regulations regarding the the report and is there's you know not going to be the sort of Ken Starr like narrative to guide us through what they found. Yeah, no that that makes total sense and that is and I totally agree with you and again this is this is what sort of is controlling my the sort of the scope of of the possibilities that I think this news report could represent that he's very very by the books and again that both um you know validates what you just said tyranny about kind of like you know he's not gonna pull a jim comey and there were a lot of problems with jim comey despite sort of how we're living in a different world right now um and it also bounds that i don't think he would you know this is even aside from the other reasons you mentioned tyranny that this is like uh bill barr called him up on monday and said dude you're done and he just went along with that. That does not square with the person we know. I think what we get to here is something that has always been a basic problem with the nature of this investigation and why a congressional inquiry has always been so critical. And obviously, we had sort of sham inquiries uh, over the last two years, certainly in the House, a little less so in the Senate. And that is that Bob Mueller was basically charged with going out and finding the crimes and prosecuting the crimes. The country has a great need to know what happened here, whichever way it is. It needs to be, you know, to the extent that it can be settled, it needs to be settled. You know, could be that 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 people like myself are wrong and it's just, you know, kind of that they they used all the investigative tools and it's just not there. You know, okay, well, that's we have that out and obviously it could be could be the reverse. And um, so I agree with you. That is that is correct. I mean, one the, the I think the key is the key here is that the with the with the Clinton investigation, there wasn't that kind of thing. You didn't have a big public question that divided the whole country that 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 we need to have settled publicly. So that makes I 100 percent agree with you. That makes sense about the regulations 
about Bob Mueller as a person, as a as a legal professional, but it is a basic problem for the country if it does end up that way with no conclusion that that creates a verdict by a, you know, relatively respected and unbiased uh, investigator. That's a that's a that's a problem for the whole country. It's a problem for 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 people on both sides of this public argument. All right, let's shift gears a little bit now to some interesting kind of court action happening. Tomorrow we have Roger Stone set to appear before Amy Berman Jackson in Washington, D.C., basically concerning an Instagram post he made on President's Day, uh, which was Monday of this week. Tierney, you've been following the, I guess, various levels of you know, gag orders or restrictions on his communications. What are we expecting tomorrow? And just just to give everyone a little bit of context about this post, Roger Stone on Instagram posted a photo of Amy Berman Jackson with, there was a crosshairs in the background. It said something like the fix is in. It was kind of basically railing against this judge and she's not pleased with that post for obvious reasons and wants to uh, have him appear tomorrow. What are we expecting, Tierney? Yeah, so... From her order itself, she basically said that Roger Stone is going to need to explain himself and explain that, A, why shouldn't this post prompt some adjustment to the current gag order in the case, and B, why shouldn't this post uh, not prompt some adjustment or outright revocation of his conditions of release as he await trials on bail. Um and, you know, having covered Amy Berman Jackson and the, how she's ha- handled other cases, you know, I think at the very least she's going to scold Roger Stone for this. We saw her scold both Rick Gates and Paul Manafort when they told the line or outright violated their gag orders in their case. What's worth noting here is that Roger Stone was already kind of working off the benefit of that his gag order was actually much looser than Paul Manafort's and Rick Gates. He was only barred from making comments about the case when he was entering and exiting the courthouse. Other people, his lawyers, witnesses, had a a stricter, more typical gag order of not commenting on the the case at all. So with that in mind, the last couple days, Roger Stone hasn't really kept quiet about his thoughts about the case or the judge, which leads us to this Instagram post that he had to pull down and apologize in court filings and has since tried to explain away. So... Even though there's this sort of threat that he might get his gag order tightened up or might have to be thrown into jail ahead of trial, I, I think what's going to happen is she's going to chastise him a bit, remind him that, you know, if he if he kind of gins up publicity against himself in the lead up to the trial, she's not going to let him do use that as an excuse going into the trial for any special relief. But I, I, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical that we'll see anything beyond that, just because that's sort of how she handled Paul Manafort and Rick Gates when they got into trouble. Though what they did was, compared to Roger Stone, a little less less troublesome. You know, ghostwriting an op-ed that is going to be running in a Ukrainian newspaper or a, attending a, or filming a video for a very sparsely attended fundraiser doesn't really compare to posting on Instagram this sort of threatening post. But we'll see how she handles it. Tierney, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with you. I'd be very surprised if she sends him to jail. But what struck me there, and, and I suspect that I'm very curious if there was any back channel communication between 
either the judge and the lawyers or just other members of the federal, you know, that what was so striking to me about the filing from his lawyers, they apologized. <laughs> like, like I really got the, I got really got the impression from that filing that they called him up and said, you are going to write this apology or like in a half hour, we're off your case. Cause you know, like read him the riot act. But what struck me is when she like, okay, there's a picture of her. There's this, you know, kind of a circle and a plus sign on top of each other. Like when we were reporting that on Monday or whenever it was, I was like, is, you know, it's not it, over her face. Yeah. Right? Like, is it across hairs? Yeah, right. And this is kind of a very Roger Stone thing. You kind of have it there. It's kind of, is that kind of what he's saying? And all this kind of stuff. But when she responded that way, I, it seems to me she is validating. Yes. You threatened me. And that is not okay. So you're going to come back and talk about whether, you know, whether we're going to revoke your bail or blah, 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 blah. If I'm right, I mean, because like, you know, can he just post on social media like, oh, here's my judge, you know, <laughs> she's overseeing my case. You know, it, it seems to me she has sort of validated the interpretation that this was a threat, even if a sort of a tongue in cheek kind of being, you know, kind of. Uh, Roger Stone kind of thing, a threat against a federal judge. And so I feel like she is sort of, maybe not boxed herself in, but to the extent that she did validate that interpretation of what he was doing there, can she really just say, oh, okay, you know, you kind of, you Knock sort of, you sort of said I should be shot in the right. head, but come on, let's, 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 let's not get carried away. How, does that, does I mean, that? I don't know. I, I, I think I, I, I might disagree with you that this order necessarily validates that this was a threat per se. Um, she, I don't think she used that strong of words in the order. I think she just sort of in, said in light of the Instagram post. And keep in mind in, in, her, in her sort of uh, order laying out the gag order a couple days ago, the two main issues that she highlighted were one specifically to Stone, the sort of media frenzy that's been sort of happening outside of the courthouse every time he shows up because everyone thinks he's going to, you know, make these comments. And and B, just more generally, and this is sort of the concern that has been raised in a lot of these Mueller cases is that this is a highly public case. Everyone's paying attention and you have to protect your jury pool and you have to kind of assure that you're going to be able to seat a jury with 16 unbiased jurors. And if he's going to be going around and saying Mueller used legal trickery to get this crooked judge who's already done all these horrible things to preside over this case of me that fixes in. Maybe not in D.C. We're going to see a ton of people be tainted by that. But you want to make sure that he's not going to be able to go months from now when he's in trial and say, I wasn't able to have a fair trial because there's too much publicity around this case. You know, right. she said in her order a couple of days ago, you, you're the one who's creating a lot of this publicity, so you're not going to be able to use that as an as an argument in your favor months down the road when you're about to go to trial. Well, Tierney, remind me this though, because the the actual lang- what he actually said besides the picture, I'm kind of forgetting now. What did he actually say in that in that Instagram? I mean, more or less, not quotes, but what what did he say in that? Yeah, post? so he basically said, "Deep State Robert Mueller used legal trickery to make sure." that my case was in front of this judge, Amy Berman Jackson, who presided over Benghazi right. and incarcerated Paul Manafort before his trial. Hashtag fixes in. 
link to legal defense fund. I mean, part of this is that he's trying to raise money. <laughs> and specifically, this is about joining the cases because they made the argument that it's all part of the same, that whole yeah, thing, right? Yeah, okay. so there was, there were some, there were some, you know, legal procedures, some filings that sort of linked this case to, you know, another case before her. And, and the Stone had, I, if I recall correctly, had tried to resist it, you know, being in front of her at an earlier point, but it, the transfer prevailed. So basically, that that to going back to our earlier dis- disagreement, that she could say, "I'm not, I'm not getting into the picture," but you are, you are, you are disrespecting the judicial system. You're kind of you're you're questioning the legitimacy of the decisions of the court. You're blah 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 blah. So she does have the ability. Maybe she is saying, "You just can't trash talk the process during the process," or. I may need to rethink the gag order or something like that. So so there is more there that she could be grabbing onto besides the picture. It was striking that, you know, he had gotten this looser gag order that, than Manafort had, but Manafort also didn't file any opposition to a gag order when she first floated imposing it, so maybe that's why. Um, but in, in the Manafort situation, she sort of stressed, I don't want you doing your arguments outside of the courthouse. I want you to do them in court. Court filings, there's a procedure for this. There's a way we do this to keep this fair. And that's why I'm imposing this gag order. So maybe what we'll see tomorrow is her sort of reiterating that concern and saying, Roger Stone, you are now going to be subjected to the same treatment that Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, and others in this in this investigation have had to subject themselves to. Josh Kay, if we can turn it over to you next, there's been some interesting stories you've written about the Manafort case. So about a a week, I guess a week ago today, there was a sealed hearing, right? In front of Amy Berman Jackson as well? Yeah, the same judge. Yeah, same judge. Uh, We've gotten a redacted transcript that reveals some kind of interesting details from it. There's a lot to keep track of here. There's everything from like a smoke-filled, literal smoke-filled room at a cigar club in Midtown Manhattan to... In Jared Kushner's family building. Yeah, I know. You can't even... If you were writing a a movie script about this, you really wouldn't even... You couldn't even make up these details. You'd be overwritten. But then there's also Manafort kind of downplaying a story about something we don't quite know about. Is that right? Yeah, there's a mystery investigation. Yeah, just catch us up on kind of like what's going on here and what's sort of the latest revelations here that that we all need to be aware of. Sure, yeah. So basically there have been two hearings uh, in February regarding Manafort's breach of his agreement, with, of his plea deal with prosecutors. The first one featured arguments from both sides kind of going into five separate lies that Manafort, the prosecutors accused Manafort of telling and, you know, whether or not they were actually intentionally, you know, Manafort intentionally lied or whether or not they were accidents, you know, issues of recollection or whatever. And then there was a, a second hearing where the yeah, the one you referred to the transcript was released last week in which Berm in which Judge Berman Jackson um, ruled on which were which she deemed were you know intentional false materials material false statements and which were not um, out of those five so yeah I mean there are a few interesting things and in at least the two transcripts kind of combined both seeing what the prosecutors were saying and the defense and also what Berman Jackson was saying I think shed some light on the inner workings of the Mueller investigation that we hadn't had before. Uh, you know, for example, the fourth, I think, lie uh, concerned this unknown investigation that Manafort initially offered a really supposedly incriminating version of events to prosecutors. Um, you know, then he pleads guilty and then he meets with Mueller's team, then uh, prosecutors from other offices. It's not clear what offices those are. Uh, and all of a sudden he tells them much more in the words prosecutors benign version of events. Um, you know, it's clear from Berman's uh 
were Reverend Jackson's words at the hearing that that testimony had to do with something something he observed when he was in his position as chairman of the uh, Trump campaign. But beyond that, the details we have on it are really really scarce. Uh, there's other interesting stuff. There's him going out of his way to you know, protect Konstantin Kilimnik, the uh, former Russian military intelligence translator who he worked with closely in Ukraine and also brought, as you mentioned, to this cigar room in uh, August 2016, like two weeks before uh, he had to step down. And so, I mean, that was also an interesting thing because we saw, you know, some new details about that meeting, about what might, might have been discussed. It seems more and more likely that uh, the transfer of polling from Manif- from the Trump campaign through Manafort to Kilimnik uh, either occurred or was discussed at that meeting. And also that uh, there was a funny... Is this yeah. like internal polling? Do you have a sense of what what type of poll that was? It's not clear. You know, there was some reporting saying it was just like Paul Manafort printed out at 538 and gave it to <laughs> So just looking ahead, in early March, was it the 3rd or the 5th? Do we have Manafort's sentencing hearing coming up? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that's about right. He faces, what, 19 to 24 years, something like that? Yeah, that's, that's DC sentencing, right? Yeah. Which for a man his age is basically... The rest of your life. I mean, he's almost 70. So, yeah. yeah. It would, let me ask you this, because there's the other stuff in the East, Eastern District, Eastern Virginia. Um, I seem to remember when that came up that uh, some federal, ex-federal prosecutor type said that in these kind of cases, those, are, those sentences would be concurrent. So it's not like... He's facing like another 20 years there. He might get 20 years there, but they would be concurrent. So that's, I mean, again, that would, he'd be in his mid nineties, but right. just to, is, is that, is that the assumption? I think that's the assumption. Okay. I think that's a, a decision that is ultimately made by the judge in sentencing, but everyone I've talked to seems right. to think that's probably right. where he would, where they would land the judges that they would be, or, you know, some of the stuff would run concurrently, some would be consecutive, but yeah, I don't think anyone really thinks that these are going to be totally stacked one on top of the other. But okay, but that that would suggest, though, that because the 19 to 24 is just the D.C. stuff, right? right? The, the Eastern District, sorry, I, I got that wrong. Yeah, the, the, the Eastern Virginia. Right. Um, yeah, and that's, so that's just the financial frauds. It doesn't go to the... Uh, you know, lobbying issues in, D- in DC. And all right. That. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it could be conceivably, it could be even longer, like a little stacking, not right. like not like fully consecutive. But okay. Well, he's that's a problem for him. Yeah. Okay. All right. Before we get to our last topic, just want to take a moment to remind our listeners about TPM Prime. It's our membership service. Josh, what do you? What should people know about that? Uh, well, they should. They should. What they should know about it is they definitely should subscribe. <laughs> yes. Um, because uh, well, you know, TPM is an independent uh, news organization, uh, and subscriptions are where we get most of our revenue. How we do the work we do. So, if you certainly, if you are a reader of TPM, our website, uh, subscribe. It's not too much. Five bucks a month, fifty bucks a year, um, and that is really the lifeblood of our organization. If you like this podcast and and you want to support what we do, uh, consider subscribing. Uh, you just go to the site. If you're not a subscriber, there is a little button at the upper right-hand corner that says Join Prime. Just click there. It's pretty easy. And again, it's uh, you know the cost of uh, uh, fancy coffee once a month. And I know that too well. Yeah, yeah. It makes a, <laughs> makes a big difference for us, so we appreciate it. Yeah. All right. The other big story kind of in the news this week is the new book by Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI. He's been going, like we said earlier, on on a, a media tour, 
promoting this book. I think tomorrow, Tierney, you're actually going to see him in person, right? He's doing a press event in D.C.? Uh, I, I'd say uh, pen and pad that he's talking to some reporters. So, uh, yes, but it's not going to be pen like pad, in right. cameras or anything. Right, right, right. Well, he seems to have maxed out on that. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's enough done cameras that. for yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's been, a lot of, there's been a lot of, I don't know, tidbits coming out of this book talking about just, Justice Department officials talking about invoking the 25th Amendment against Trump. Um, what else? In interviews, McCabe has said it's possible Trump is a Russian asset or still is a Russian asset. Tierney, you just wrote up a story on the website about kind of some behind the scenes, back and forth details about the administration coming into knowledge of Michael Flynn discussing sanctions with Sergei Kislyak, who was the ambassador to Russia at the time of the transition from the Obama administration to Trump. I know you read this book last night, Tierney, or at least most of it. Kind of what was some of your big takeaways from what you read? Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of the biggest bombshells have already aired out on various television video uh, interviews that we've been covering uh, intermittently. But, you know, what I got out of it was a lot more color and sort of details around the edges about sort of the emotions and the and the, and the feelings in the rooms that uh, were a lot of these things that we've, we've known about happened. Um, and what I wrote about this morning was how people came to learn about the Michael Flynn conversations with Kislyak and his subsequent lies about um, two specific sort of details that I highlighted was how McCabe found out about um, is that the FBI wanted to, to make an assessment of why Vladimir Putin had not sought to retaliate for the sanctions imposed by the Obama administrations uh, in, in late December 2016. They were trying to gather intel for the president's daily briefing. They sort of invited the intelligence community to offer up any information that it had that would sort of shed light of why Putin had had this sort of muted response to the, to the sanctions. And this is how McCabe and other high-level officials found out about this uh, information about Flynn's conversations with Kislyak shortly after the, the sanctions were announced. Another episode that I, I wrote about this morning was about when Vice President Pence himself got to view this this information February 10th, weeks after he'd already been on in front of camera saying that Flynn had assured him sanctions were not discussed and McCabe describing sort of his face sinking and him just kind of not, you know, shaking his head and this sort of physical frustration in, in, in that that the vice president expressed and it kind of a notable more moment in the timeline because it was still a few more days before Trump fired Flynn and there was still some stalling even after that moment on, on Trump's be- behalf to, to letting Flynn go even though it was pretty clear to the major players that he had, had lied about these conversations. Yeah, remind me, do we have any sense of why there was that three-day delay? Is it just Trump having allegiance to Flynn, not wanting to cut Loose kind of one of his. I mean, I think it's still not totally clear. What we know is that White House officials themselves pressed Flynn about about this, these false statements, and had advised Trump that they needed to let Flynn go. And when Trump, you know, considered to resist firing him, that's when we started seeing more reports circulate in the press about the concerns that he might be a that Flynn could be vulnerable to Russian blackmail because Russians knew that he had this conversation and, and that seemed to finally force Trump's hand. But then a day after firing Flynn is when he had the fateful conversation with Comey about you know letting Flynn go. So I think that's to bring things full circle. This is one of the things that I think a lot of us would like to hear an answer from from Robert Mueller is, you know, why was Trump so concerned about 
where the the investigation uh, into Flynn was heading. And that conversation with Trump and Comey you're talking about is Trump asking Comey to sort of take it easy. He's a yeah, good the guy. Oval Office conversation. Yes, yeah, so that happened on February 14th on on Valentine's Day. We all recall from Comey's own sort of uh, press tour about his book. He had to, you know, cancel Valentine's Day plans with his, his <laughs> wife to, to go to dinner with the president. <laughs> it's interesting. I want to I want to look up the the passage you're talking about there, Tierney, with with uh, Pence because I have always been highly skeptical that he was really surprised to learn that because if I, if I'm remembering the reporting on this, that uh, before Mike Flynn talked to the ambassador, he had basically a conference call or a one-to-one call with uh, Katie Mc, KT McFarlane, who was the, his deputy uh, at the NSC. And I think McFarlane was like down in Mar-a-Lago with Trump and, you know, Stephen Miller, some kind of group of people. And so they weren't on the phone with those other people were not on the phone with Flynn, but basically Flynn was calling in and say, hey, I think better call the ambassador, kind of get him to kind of tone down here. So those people knew, Trump knew, McFarlane knew, and g- given Pence's pretty close uh, involvement, I mean, he ran the transition, um, and pretty close involvement in the foreign policy side of stuff, it always seemed pretty, I was pretty skeptical of the idea that Pence was really caught off guard by this. I mean, there's, 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 there's just, you know, inherent skepticism. I mean, it seemed like he was lying at the time. It seemed obvious, but it always struck me as, as again, pretty dubious that Pence didn't actually know about it when it happened. Like one of the people who was in the loop and signed off on it and thought it was a good idea. I do remember there was, Tierney, wasn't there a point in the in the evolution of that story in February 2017, where Flynn seemed to say, oh, you know, I talked to him, but I was just uh, like, you know, good New Year's, you know, Merry Christmas, Christmas greetings, or something. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, I, I don't know, maybe that was, maybe it was Pence kind of seeing that they'd recorded the calls. I mean, that that whole thing just strikes me as strange, although it's interesting to see um, uh, McCabe, who certainly doesn't seem to have any interest in in uh, covering, you know, covering for Mike Pence, having what sounds like a very, uh, you know, sort of vivid tableau of, of of him seeing, you know, kind of looking at the at the at the intelligence file and saying, oh, shit, man, you know, oh, you know, yeah, good Lord, Mike. I mean, so so one thing to sort of keep in mind in this timeline is, you know, you mentioned the, this Mar-a-Lago conference call. So Flynn was on vacation or was somewhere in the tropics at this point. I can't remember exactly where he was. I think he was like Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico or something. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, this confab of people in Mar-a-Lago dealing with the transition. I I believe if I remember sort of the the notes from the FBI interview correctly, you know, one of the stories he said is like, oh, the reason that there's all these calls is because I was in the Dominican Republic and the call kept dropping. (laughs) But during all of this... Pence was actually in Indiana for his son's wedding. So he was not in Mar-a-Lago when all of this was happening. We don't have a clear answer of why he wasn't sort of debriefed by the people who were involved afterwards who who knew about this. But not to defend Pence or anything, but we do know that he wasn't in the room for for, this sort of Mar-a-Lago teleconference. To your point, McCabe, I don't think, has 
he doesn't pull any punches with a lot of the other people involved in this affair, but something else he describes in this episode that didn't didn't make it into my stories before he showed Pence and 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 I believe it was Ryan's Priebus and some other officials this this report. Ryan's Priebus has sort of pulled him aside after an unrelated briefing that he'd given some of Pence's staff about how to defend yourself against foreign surveillance. I mean, I guess it's somewhat related, but I don't think it was related to this specifically. Priebus pulls him aside to sort of make this demand that he turn over the information. But in the process of sort of making this request, Pence, Priebus, and, and McGann are all sitting in someone's office, and some new story flashes on the cable news. McCabe doesn't remember what the story was exactly, but it was something that was somehow based on some White House's leak. And they had, you know, they got totally distracted by it, you know, had this heated conversation about this leak that had prompted the story and sort of got completely sidetracked from this somewhat important request that they see this information about Flynn's conversation. And it took them a couple minutes to get back to McCabe to say, okay, when can we see this? So I think it kind of goes to show sort of the level of chaos and distrust and, and sort of backstabbing that was happening um, in these early days of the administration. It, it's interesting, you know, one other thing there, I mean, and, and in, in Pence's favor, certainly before he was chosen to be the vice presidential candidate, he wasn't from Trump's world. I don't, I, I doubt he'd ever even met Trump. Um, and he certainly got with the program pretty quickly. Um, and it's been my assumption that and I and I I think we know for a fact that on certain aspects of this Russia stuff that he was definitely looped in, kind of knew what was going on. So as you say, wasn't doesn't clearly was not on that actual call. Maybe he, you know, maybe he didn't. Know. I mean, there's there's clearly got to be if you are Mike Pence, who, I mean, the one thing I will grant Mike Pence, he seems to be a very legitimate prude. Right. I mean, he's he's like a pretty straight laced guy. He may be like deeply corrupt and everything, but there there must be in being Mike Pence as vice president, a high degree of like, yeah. I'm not going to see certain Flip things. That. I hear or, no evil, see no evil. It's like self-protection. Yeah. Or, 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 he just knows how or, to get himself out of the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of like, uh, you know, I didn't see it and I'm just not going to, I'm not going to kind of look, you know, look behind that door kind of thing. So, so that does seem, um, uh, you know, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, another, just to kind of talk up this book a little bit that I, I mean, I, I confess I started reading it. I got like, you know, 10 pages in basically that the, the day it arrived, but they're there just for our listeners. It starts with the firing of James Comey. That's sort of like the lead in of the book. And there's this pretty powerful uh, thing where, you know, he's in the office one day, Comey's out in L.A. He, someone, they're in a meeting and one of uh, McCabe's staffers kind of pops into the office and says, you know, uh, Attorney General wants to talk with you. And McCabe in the writing says, you know, I knew something must be up because I, you know, AG doesn't talk to me very often. And then the staffer says he wants to talk to you like in person. And so he's thinking like. This is, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, adding in things that are kind of implicit in what he says, but like, you know, maybe it's a terrorist, attack, you know, something, something big. So he goes over to uh, to um, uh, Jeff Sessions' office, which is just, you know, kind of like a block away, kind of, you know, a few minute walk, goes, you know, comes into the office. Uh, I, I think Sessions is there. Uh, Rosenstein is there. Maybe one other person is there. And and Jeff Sessions says, 
we had to fire Comey. And that's the first that's the first he heard about it. And it's just a very I mean, again, it's it's all color. It doesn't really tell us anything new, but it's 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 you know, puts you in the pretty room, good yeah. theater, yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty do you remember that scene, Tierney? Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's you know, there's there is like I like I mentioned, you know, there there's less say the the book provides less in terms of major bombshells of episodes we had no idea about, but more kind of highlighting the drama and the emotion and I think it's a good exercise when you think about I remember the day that Comey got fired pretty clearly. I was on the hill. We knew yeah. then versus what we yeah. know now. It helps you kind of plug in the information and step step back for a little bit and see the full picture. He he also had in the, in that in that uh, anecdote uh, McCabe has this line, and I can't remember exactly what his what his um, alternatives were, but he has this line where he says, you know, when he looks at Rosenstein and Sessions, that kind of like he wasn't sure if their if their looks were accusatory or feeling guilty or like you know that, and it just it captures in a very interesting way, like he's shocked, and they kind of they have no idea what they're doing, and and I think if I remember this right. McCabe says that sort of the first thing he said was like, hey, I got to I got to say something to the staff at the FBI. Um, And I think or at least I think Sessions basically says nothing public or maybe he says nothing at all, kind of like until we talk to you again. And you get this sense. And I think McCabe says this explicitly. It doesn't seem to have occurred to them. You got to tell people the FBI (laughs) that that Comey's being fired. And it just gives you this very, very. this this very rich feeling of being there and just how chaotic this was and even you know there's Trump who's sort of driving this train and everybody else the sort of the the complicit and the conspiracy the conspirators and the people totally caught off guard are all equally reacting to this totally chaotic thing that is just outside anybody's experience Again, it seems like a pretty good read, if if yeah. if, if nothing else, and and um, it's just interesting because clearly, I mean, it doesn't seem like McCabe's holding much back. He's not right. looking to kind of like for another appointment in the Trump administration. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah we'll be, not, curi- not we'll be at curious. All. We'll yeah. be curious to hear what you find out tomorrow at the uh, at the event. And I know he's doing more interviews too, so we'll hear more soon. Yeah. All right. So I got I got to remind everybody that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Tierney, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Later, Josh. Thanks. Bye, guys. Later, David. Bye.